Chapter Four of It Happened in Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. It Happened in Egypt, by Charles Norris Williamson and Alice Muriel Williamson. Chapter Four: A Man in a Green Turban. I shall never know for certain whether or not our future was entirely shaped by Monny's resolve to breakfast on the terrace of Shepherd's Hotel next morning. A great many remarkable things have happened on that historic site. Napoleon made the place his headquarters. General Kleber was murdered in the garden. Half the most important people in the world have had tea on the terrace, but according to a German waiter, there was one deed yet undone. Nobody had ever ordered breakfast out of doors. Of course, Monny got what she wanted. Not by storming, not by putting on power of wealth airs, but simply by turning bright pink and looking large-eyed. At once that waiter rushed off and fetched other waiters, and almost before the invited guests knew what to expect, two tables had been fitted together, covered with white, adorned with fresh roses, and set forth with cups and saucers. I was the one man invited, and I felt like an actor called to play a new part in an old scene. A scene vaguely, excitingly familiar. Could I possibly be remembering it? I asked myself, or was my impression but the result of a lifelong debauch of Egyptian photographs? Anyhow, there was the impression with a thrill in it, and I felt that I ought to be handsomer, more romantic, altogether more vivid, if I were to live up to the moving picture. It seemed as if nothing would be too extraordinary to do if I wanted to match my surroundings. I thought even if I burst into a passionate Arab love song and proposed to Monny across the table, it would be quite the right note. But somehow I didn't feel inclined to propose. It was enough to admire her over the rim of a coffee cup. In her white tussore, I heard Biddy call it tussore, and drooping garden type of hat, she was a different girl from the girl of the ship. She had been a winter girl in white fur then. Now she was a summer girl and a radiant vision. Twice as pretty as before, especially in this Oriental frame. Still, I was waiting to see myself fall in love with her, much in the same way that Biddy was waiting. And there was that Oriental frame. It belonged to my past, and perhaps Monny Gilder didn't belong even to my future, so it was excusable if I thought more of it than her. It was hardly nine o'clock, but already the wonderful colored cinema show of Cairo daily life had begun to flash and flicker past the terrace of Shepherds, where East and West meet and mingle more sensationally than anywhere in Egypt. Nobody save ourselves had dared suggest breakfast, but travelers were pouring into the hotel and pouring out. Pretty women and plain women were sitting at the little wicker tables to read letters or discuss plans for the day with each other or their dragomans. Officers in khaki came and talked to them about golf and gymkhanas. Down on the pavement, close under the balustrade, crowded young and old Egyptian men with dark faces and wonderful eyes, or no eyes at all, struggling to sell painted postcards, strings of blue-gray mummy beads, necklaces of cornelian and great lumps of amber, fans, perfumes, sample sticks of smoking incense, toy camels cleverly made of jute, fly-whisks from the Sudan with handles of beads and dangling shells, scarab rings and brooches, cheap gay jewelry, scarves from Asuet, white, black, pale green and purple, glittering like miniature cataracts of silver, as brown arms held them up. Darting Arab urchins hawked tame ichinemons, 
or shouted newspapers for sale, English, American, Greek, French, German, Italian, and Turkish. Copper-tinted, classic-featured youths in white had golden crowns of bananas round their turbans, withered patriarchs in blue galabias offered oranges, or immense bunches of mixed flowers, fresh and fragrant as the morning, or baskets of strawberries red and bright as rubies. Dignified Arabs stalked by, bearing on nobly poised heads pots of growing rose-bushes, or arum lilies, or azaleas. Jet-black giants, wound in rainbow-striped cottons, clanked brass saucers like cymbals, advertising the sweet drinks in their glass jars, while memory whispered in my ears the Arab name, Sherbetli. Across the street, clear silvered sunshine of winter in Egypt shone on precious stones, on carved ivories, silver anklets, Persian rugs, and embroideries, brilliant as hummingbirds' wings, all displayed in the windows of shops where dark eyes looked out eagerly for buyers. Everything was for sale, for sale to the strangers. The whole clamoring city seemed to consist of one vast, concentrated desire on the part of brown people to sell things to fair people. They shouted and wheedled and besought on the sidewalks, and the roadway between was a wide river of color and life. Motor-cars with Arab chauffeurs carried rich Turks to business, or to an audience of state. Now and then a face of ivory glimmered through a gauzy veil, and eyes of ink and diamonds shot starry glances from passing carriage windows. Erect Englishwomen drove high dog-carts. Gordon Highlanders swung along in the kilt, more at home in Cairo than in Edinburgh, the droning of their pipes as oriental as the drone of Araita, or the beat of tom-toms. A wedding-party with a hidden bride in a yellow chariot met a funeral, and yashmaked faces peeped from curtain-windows, in one procession, to stare at the wailing, marching men of the other, and to shrink back hastily from the sight of the coffin. Tangled, it would seem, inextricably with streams of traffic, surging both ways, moved the ships of the desert, loaded with emerald-green bursim, long lilting necks, and calm, mysterious eyes of camels, high above the cloaked heads of striding Bedouins, heads of defiant Arab prisoners, chained and handcuffed to each other, heads of blue-eyed water-buffaloes, and heads of trim, white, tasseled donkeys. None of us talked very much as we sat at the breakfast-table. The novelty and wonder of the scene made the actors forget their words, and if we had been able to talk, we could not have appreciated each other's rhapsodies over the shoutings of men who wanted us to buy their wares, and harangues of dragomans who wished, as Monny said, to drag us. These latter especially were persistent, and better the one-eyed, having been forbidden to come till ten o'clock, was not on the spot to give protection. Our method, at first, was to appear oblivious, but presently, in my wickedest Arabic, I would have ordered the troop away, if Monny had not interfered. "'Don't,' she said. "'They're part of the picture. Besides, they've more right here than we have. It's their country, not ours. And they're so interesting, most of them. That tall man over there, for instance, with the green turban. He's the only one who hasn't opened his mouth. Just to show him that virtue's its own reward, I'm going to engage him. Will you call him to us, please, Lord Ernest?' Sitting as I sat, I could not see the person indicated. "'What do you want him for, Miss Gilder?' I obeyed my temptation, and asked. "'Why, to be a dragoman, of course,' she exclaimed. "'That's what he's here for. I told you I'd have a picturesque one for ornament. This creature's a perfect specimen.' 
I stood up reluctantly and looked down over the balustrade. A man with a green turban, I repeated, but that means he's a haji who's been to Mecca and back. I never heard of a dragoman. I stopped short in my argument. My eyes had found the man with the green turban. He stood at some distance behind the pavement merchants and self-advertising dragomans who pressed against the railing. In his long galabia of Sudan silk, ashes of roses in color, he was tall and straight as a palm, gravely dignified with his folded arms and the haughty remoteness of his expression. Dark and silent, half disdainful, half amused, he was like a prince compared with his humbler brethren, but there was another resemblance more relevant and intimate which cut my sentence short. By Jove, I thought, how like he is to Anthony Fenton. He was looking not at me, but at Miss Gilder, quite respectfully, yet hypnotically, as if by way of an experiment he had been willing her to find and single out the one motionless figure, the one person whose tongue had not called attention to himself. Yes, I thought again, he was an Arab copy of Anthony, but more as Anthony had been years ago before his moustache grew, than as Anthony had become in late years. Still, there were the aquiline features, the long, rather sad eyes shaded with thick, straight lashes, the eyebrows raised at the bridge of the thin nose, then sloping steeply down toward the temples, the slight working of muscles in the cheeks, the peculiarly charming mouth, which could be irresistible in a smile, the stern, contradictory chin marring by its prominence the otherwise perfect oval of the face. I wondered if Anthony had as noble a throat as this collarless galabia left uncovered, reminding myself that I could not at all recall Anthony's throat. Then, as the sombre eyes turned to me, drawn perhaps by my stare, I was stunned, flabbergasted, what you will, by realizing that Anthony himself was looking at me from under the green turban. The dark face was blankly expressionless. He might have been gazing through my head. His eyes neither twinkled, with fun, nor sent a message of warning, but somehow I knew that he saw me, that he had been watching me for a long time. "'You see the one I mean, don't you?' asked Monny. "'Well, that's the one I want. I'll take him.' She spoke as if she were selecting a horse at a horse-show. Anthony had brought this on himself, but I was not angry with Anthony. I was angry with the girl for putting her finger into our pie." "'That's not a dragoman,' I assured her. "'If he were, he'd come and bawl out his accomplishments as the others do. "'He's a very different sort of chap.' "'That's why I want him,' said Monny. "'And if he isn't a dragoman, he'll jump at being one if I offer to pay him enough. "'He's an Egyptian, anyhow, by his clothes, or a Bedouin or something, "'although he isn't as dark as the rest of these men. "'I suppose he must know a little about his own city and country.' "'It doesn't follow he'd tell travellers about them for money,' said I. "'He looks to me a man of good birth and distinction in old-fashioned dress. "'Why he's lingering on the pavement in front of this hotel I can't explain, "'but I'm certain he isn't touting. "'Probably he's waiting for a friend.' "'He's the best-looking Arab we've yet seen,' remarked Mrs. East, "'like my idea of an Egyptian gentleman.' Pooh," said Monny. "'Just test him, Lord Ernest.' "'I'm sorry, but I can't do it,' I answered, with a firmness which ought to have been tried on her long ago. "'And I wouldn't discuss him in such a loud tone of voice. He may understand English.' "'We have to yell to hear ourselves speak over all this row,' Biddy apologized for her darling. "'But she need not have troubled herself. Miss Gilder had been deaf to my implied reproach. "'I'm glad I'm an American girl,' she said. "'When I want things, I want them so dreadfully I just go for them, "'and surprise them so much that I get them before they know where they are. "'Now I'm going for this dragoman.' 
He's not a drago— I persisted, but she cut me short. I bet you my hat that he will be one. What will you bet that he won't, Lord Ernest? I'll bet you his green turban, said I. How can you get it? As easily as you can get him, I retorted. It's a safe bet. Monty looked excited, but firm. Luckily, as she does it so often, it's becoming to her to look firm. I have noticed that it's not becoming to most girls. It squares their jaws and makes their eyes snap. But the spoiled daughter of the dead cannon king at her worst merely looks pathetically earnest and Minerva-like. This, I suppose, is one of the little ways she has acquired since she gave up kicking and screaming people into submission. As Biddy says, the girl can be charming not only when she wants to be, but quite often when she doesn't. The man with the green turban was no longer engaged in hypnotizing. He had retired within himself and appeared oblivious to the outer world. Yet nobody jostled the tall, straight figure which stood with folded arms, lightly leaning against a tree. The color of his turban was sacred in the eyes of the crowd, and when Miss Gilder, leaning over the terrace, railing beckoned him, surprise rather than jealousy showed on the faces of the unwanted dragomans. As for the wearer of the turban, he did what I expected and wished him to do, paid not the slightest attention to the gesture. Whatever the motive for his masquerade, it was not to attract anything feminine. I smiled sardonically. "'That's a nice hat you've got on, Miss Gilder,' I remarked. "'Do you collect girls' hats?' she asked sweetly. "'But mine isn't eligible yet for your collection. Let me see. What did you say he was? Oh, a haji.' And she shrilled forth sweetly, her voice sounding young and clear. "'Haji! Haji! Effendi! Venez ici, s'il vous plaît. Please come here.' I could have been knocked flat by a blow of the smallest, cheapest ostrich feather in the hands of any street merchants. For he came, Anthony came, not to look meekly up from the pavement below the railing, but to ascend the steps of the terrace, and advance with grave dignity toward our table. Within a yard of us he stopped, giving to me, not to Miss Gilder, the beautiful Arab salute, a touch on the forehead and heart. "'You devil!' I was saying to myself. "'So you walk into this trap, do you, and calmly trust me to get you out? Serve you right if I don't move hand or foot.' And I almost made up my mind that I wouldn't. But I was interested. I wanted intensely to know what the dickens Anthony was up to, and whether he would have been up to it if he'd known the sort of young woman who he had to deal with. "'It was I who called to you, not this gentleman,' said Monny, when she found that Green Turban did not look at her. Do you speak French or English a little? A little of both. But I choose French when talking to Americans, replied Anthony Fenton, with astounding impertinence in the preferred language. I do not know you, madam, but I do know this gentleman. Good heavens, what next? He acknowledged me. What was I to do now? What did the impudent fellow want me to do? Evidently he was trying an experiment. Antony is great on experiments, and always has been. But this was a bomb. I thought he wanted to see if I could catch it on the fly and drop it into water before it had time to explode. "'Why didn't you tell us, Lord Ernest?' asked Monny, with a flash in her grey eyes. "'I thought you hadn't been in Egypt since you were a child.' "'I haven't, and I didn't recognize him at first. I answered, trying for the coolness which Anthony dared to count upon. "'You remember me now?' he inquired politely. "'I, er, yes,' I replied, also in French. Your face is familiar, though you've changed, I think, since, er, uh, the last you were in England. It must have been there. Yes, of course. You were on a diplomatic mission. But your name— You may have known me as Ahmed Atun, said the wretch, not dreaming of the slip that he had made. 
Cleopatra, who has a little French, nevertheless started, and fixed upon the face under the turban a stare of feverish interest. Bridget and the unobtrusive lady with the slanting eyes both showed such symptoms of surprise as must too late have warned Fenton that he had missed his footing, skating on thin ice. "'Antoon!' exclaimed Mrs. East. "'Why, that's what you said you called your friend, Captain Fenton.' I glanced at Anthony. His profile had no more expression than that of an Indian on an American penny, and indeed rather resembled it. If he were blaming me for letting anything out, I had a right to blame him for letting himself in. He was silent as well as expressionless. He left it all to me, diplomat or duffer. Antoon Effendi was the nickname my friend Fenton got at school, I explained to Cleopatra, because it sounded a bit like his own name, and because he had, er, uh, because he had associations with Egypt. He was proud of them, and still is. But Antoon is a name often heard here and every man who isn't a bey or a prince or a sheikh is an effendi. I quite remember you now, I hurried on, turning to Anthony once more. You are haji as well as effendi. I have the right to call myself so, if I choose, he admitted. I am pleased to meet you again. I was waiting for a friend when you beckoned. If you did not recognize my face at first, may I ask what it was you wanted of me? There was no limit, then, to his audacity. He had not learned his lesson yet, after all, it would seem. Monny could not bear tamely to lose her hat, although she must have felt her hat-pins trembling in the balance. "'I told you before,' she repeated, "'that it was I who beckoned you.' He looked at her without speaking, and somehow the green turban and the long straight gown, by adding to his dignity, added also to his remote air of cold politeness. How could she go on? Had she the cheek to go on? She had, but the cheek was flushed with embarrassment.' I, uh, I'm anxious for a guide, someone who knows Egypt well, and several languages, she desperately blurted out, looking like a half-frightened, half-defiant child. I thought, there are plenty of dragomans, madam, Green Turban reminded her. I can recommend you several. I don't want a regular dragoman, she said, and I'm not madam. I am Miss Gilder. Indeed, chilling indifference in the tone, Monty's hat was practically mine. I thought I should rather value it. "'Yes, but of course that can't matter to you. "'No, it cannot, mademoiselle. "'What I want to say is this. "'You're a haji, which means you've been to Mecca. "'Lord Ernest Burroughs just told us. "'So you must be very intelligent. "'Are you in business?' "'I am interested in excavations.' "'Oh, and are you allowed to make them yourself?' "'Not always.' "'I glanced at him quickly, "'wondering if he meant that answer more for me than for the girl. "'But his face told nothing.' Would you be able to, if you were rich enough? It is possible. Well, I'd be willing to give you a big salary for showing us about Cairo, and perhaps going up the Nile. You do not know who I am, mademoiselle. Ask your friend Lord Ernest Burrow. Perhaps he may remember something about my circumstances, now he has recalled my face. I was honestly not sure whether this were further deviltry, or an appeal for help. In any case, I thought it time for the scene to end. I told you, I said to Monty in English, that he was a man of importance, not at all the sort of person you could expect to engage for a guide. You must see now that he's a gentleman, and a, a, an Egyptian gentleman is just the same as any other. Surely not quite, she answered in the same language, and I realized my foolish mistake in using it, as if I meant her to understand that Antoun Effendi knew it too little to catch our secrets. An Egyptian man can't have the same feelings as a European? 
Why, for hundreds and hundreds of years they've been an enslaved race, like our black people at home. We'd never think of calling even the fairest quadrine man a gentleman, though he might be wonderfully good-looking and nice-mannered. Literally, I was frightened. Anthony Fenton is fiercely devoted to the memory of the beautiful princess mother, for love of whom his father's career was ruined. Her mother was a Sicilian woman, and her father was half Greek, so there is little enough Egyptian blood, after all, in the veins of General Fenton's son. He is proud of what there is, proud because of his mother's fatal charm and the romance of her story. It was on the eve of her wedding with a cousin of the Sultan that the famous soldier Charles Fenton ran away with Princess Lala and married her in Sicily, but he is sensitive, too, because great name as Charles Fenton had made in Egypt, he was asked to resign his commission on account of the escapade. Anthony, sent to England to a public school, had fought bigger boys than himself, who, in a certain tone, had sneeringly called him Egyptian. I imagined now that through the dark stain on his face I could see him turn pale with rage. He thought, perhaps, that the American beauty was revenging herself for his impertinence, and maybe he was right, but that did not excuse her. "'Be careful, Miss Gilder,' I warned the girl. "'This man understands English better than you think. He comes of a princely family, and he's only got to put out his hand to claim a fortune.' "'You seem to remember all about me now, Lord Ernest,' broke in Fenton, looking dangerous. "'Yes,' I said, "'it comes back to me. You must forgive Miss Gilder.' "'There is nothing to forgive,' he caught me up. "'I am not a dragoman, to be sure, but I'm enough of an Egyptian to have a price for anything I do. I may put myself at this lady's service, if she will pay my price, though I am not a servant, and I can't accept wages, even for the sake of pursuing my excavations.' He continued to speak in French, lest my companion's suspicions should be further aroused by the English of an Englishman, and Monny, pale after her blush, answered in neat schoolgirl French, with a pretty American accent. "'What's the price you wish to name?' she inquired, looking a little afraid of him and ashamed of herself, now that the talk of princes and fortunes was bandied about. "'Of course,' she went on, when he did not answer at once, "'if I'd known all this, I shouldn't have asked you to be a dragoman.' At least, perhaps, I shouldn't. Anyhow, I shouldn't have made a bet. A bet that I would have a price, mademoiselle? Then you may win your bet, for I've just told you I have a price. But I think it unlikely you would be willing to pay it. Good heavens! Is he going to try and marry the girl? I asked myself. It would be the last thing to expect of Anthony Fenton. However, he had already done the last but one, the thing I had bet his green turban he would not do. After all, he was a man, and a reckless man, as he had proved on more than one wild occasion. He was in a strange mood, capable of anything, and the gilded rose could never have been pretty in her life than at this minute. She had made him furious, and I had imagined that his acceptance of her overtures was the beginning of some scheme of punishment. Now I was almost sure I had been right, yet I could not guess what he would be at. Neither could Monny. But here was the dangerous picturesque Arab, who must be a prince or something, as Cleopatra had expressed it. And he was even more dangerous than picturesque. "'You—you you said you wouldn't take wages,' she stammered. I enjoyed hearing the self-willed young person stammer. So I can't understand what you mean. But even though you are all those things Lord Ernest says you are, your price can't be so terribly high as to be beyond my power, if I choose to pay.' First, mademoiselle, I must decide whether I choose to be paid. Oh, Monny exclaimed, taken aback, I thought it was a question of price. 
Not only that. I may put myself at the lady's service for a price, was what I said. I didn't say I will. I shall not be able to tell you until to-night. The patronizing tone in which Anthony spoke this sentence was worth to me everything I had gone through in the last half-hour. But I want to settle things this morning, or not at all, said Monny, reverting to type, that of the spoiled child. I am sorry, replied the man of the green turban. In that case it must be not at all. And he made as if to go. The gilded girl could not bear this. I and the others would see that she was fallible, that there were things she wanted which she could not get. Why can't you tell me now what your price is? she persisted. Because, mademoiselle, I may not need to tell you ever. It depends partly on another than myself. He threw a quick glance at me. I expect to meet that other at Abdullahi's cafe in an hour from now at latest. Everything will depend on the interview. In any case, I will let you know tonight what I can do. I may not be in, said Monny. But if I'm out, you can leave a note. If I must refuse to serve you, yes, I can leave a note. If I am to accept, I must see you in person. Should you be out, I'll take it for granted that you have changed your mind and do not want, he smiled faintly for the first time, so expensive a guide. Monny hesitated. I'm not stingy. I'll stay at home this evening, she volunteered at last. Brave Petruchio, I said under my breath. But if Biddy's plot were to succeed, it was my business to play the part of Petruchio to this Catherine. Let the masquerading prince find a Desdemona who would suit his Othello. End of chapter 4